difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. Also joining us is our special guest slash Scott Tobias substitute, Joshua Rothkoff. Hello, Josh. Hello, everyone. On last week's show, we talked about Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart, a self-consciously artificial musical set on the realer-than-real streets of Las Vegas. The setting and the tone are quite different, but many of the same impulses can be found in Annette, a new musical by Leos Carax. Like Coppola, Carax is not a director fond of playing it safe, whether that means Shades of One from the Heart, recreating Paris's Pont Neuf Bridge for Lovers on the Bridge, or creating a rock opera starring Adam Driver as a self-lacerating stand-up comic who, and there's no way to discuss this film without spoilers, so keep that in mind, who murders his opera singer wife played by Marianne Cotillard midway through the film and exploits the musical talents of his young daughter, the eponymous Annette. Annette is played through most of the film by a puppet seemingly designed to invoke pathos by its very look. Carax shoots the film in long, elaborate shots that are as impressive as they are disorienting. The songs, written by Ronald and Russell Mayo, are both very much an extension of the work they created as part of the band Sparks, while also confirming why Sparks has a fervent cult following that seldom expanded into the mainstream. It's a film sure to provoke a powerful reaction. We'll get into our own reactions after the break. First time I fell in love, woke up next to the girl, and escaped fast and far. The man has changed me. What I see in her is obvious. What she sees in me is... Hmm, that's a little more puzzling. All right, everyone. Let's talk about Annette. I've been I've been dying to talk about this movie with somebody, anybody, but but you know, kind of saving it up for this podcast. So, uh, what did everyone think? It's the kind of movie where I'm just rolling it over my head for weeks now. I saw it a couple of weeks ago, and I just saw it again the other night with Christine, just so we just to revisit it and refresh on it. It's so loaded with with so much reference and the moods I get off of it. The second time I watched it, I was feeling a very strong kind of pre-code melodrama vibe off of it. There's the L.A. noir thing going on. There's the kind of like Star is Born fame trajectory thing happening. And also even Mildred Pierce, this idea of a younger child eclipsing the adult. And and then it's it, it's distancing in a way that I, I'm still kind of reckoning in my head. In a way, the whole movie feels a little like a like a Sparks album. And um I am one of those people who knew so little about the Sparks until I saw Edgar Wright's uh, Sparks Brothers documentary, 
when in which I actually thought at first that they were a joke band and 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 I'm embarrassed to say that I knew oh and then I was like oh yeah there's that song but uh, the sparks are are a little trapped in in what I call um the XTC syndrome which is like such bitter brilliant lyrics and such confrontational song structures and bold ideas why weren't they a bigger hit you know? <laughs> um they weren't a bigger hit because they are a very brainy angular confrontational band and i think that that's sort of resulted in a confrontational musical yeah confrontational was absolutely the word that i was going to invoke in in my reaction to i think bilga's uh, review over at at vulture you know said something along along the lines of it's a film that dares you to like it and i definitely felt that throughout like i was just kind of wrestling with myself like is this good or just weird do i like this or am i just curious to see where it's going but that final scene, I think, really crystallized it for me and made it all work. I've only watched it once. I just watched it a couple nights ago for the first time. And definitely, I think I need to revisit it to get a, a fuller sense of what all it's on about. Because like the, the first like third of the movie, I thought it was going to be about something entirely different than what it turned out to be about, which is Adam Driver's character. You know, we, we do lose Marion Cotillard, uh, you know, fairly early in the film, and it becomes very much uh, sort of his narrative arc. And I don't mind that, but I do maybe mourn a little bit what is lost in those early parts of the film about sort of performer's identity and, and just like performers in general and sort of the gender dynamic there. And it all kind of continues throughout the film, but it becomes much more in the head of uh, Henry McHenry, Adam Driver's character. Hey, connection, Henry, Hank, between the two films. Um, Yeah, but it becomes much more zeroed in on him. And I I think it works because Adam Driver is just such a compelling performer and he's very compelling here. And I don't think is concerned with being likable. In fact, I think he's relishing being unlikable here and it, it kind of works. But if it weren't for that final scene where it becomes real, as it were, it, it may not have worked for me. I was just so drawn in by the opening sequence. The opening sequence and the closing sequence bookend the film in artificiality. Mm. It's a, you know, Moulin Rouge style, we're telling a story, now our story is done kind of deal. And this movie does have some things in common with Moulin Rouge in that it's not reprocessing pop songs, but it is sort of reprocessing the mentality of a, a would-be pop band. It's big and theatrical and self-aware in a similar way, while not being visually like even remotely similar in terms of uh, in terms of what it's trying to do. It has the same kind of like great big operatic emotions to the the point where it honestly feels even more than Moulin Rouge, like it's based on an opera. Mm-hmm. So there's just there's a lot going on mood wise, but the the opening where we see Sparks in the studio beginning to sing a song where the song is a meta song about the movie that we're about to see. That's that's basically it's called So May We Start. And it's just them kind of singing over and over. Like, can we start the story now? We're about to tell you a story. Is it okay if we get going with this? Here's how we want you to react to it. Like, keep in mind, we're kind of sensitive about it. Like they're they're talking directly to the audience. And as they do so, they leave the studio and wander through the streets and and gradually pick up the cast and uh, more and more characters. You see the cast 
grabbing costume elements. Uh, Adam mm-hmm. Driver, who spends a lot of the movie in a, a ridiculous wig, grabs the wig out of somebody's hand and they go to their starting positions for this story. I was just so energized by that opening, by the audacity, by the, the color of it, by the energy of it, by the self-awareness of it. I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for meta elements and self-aware elements in movies. And I'm not sure that the movie ever quite got back to that verve for me, but it does remain a very self-conscious, self-aware film. It's it's very aware of cinema as a whole. It's very aware of very specific films, including, I'm convinced, absolutely one from the heart, given some of the very direct crossover elements. There are some really stellar set pieces in here. But I also felt that there were elements that just dragged that where the the music gets very repetitive, the action gets very repetitive, the emotions get very repetitive. And the long, long sequences of Adam Driver's uh, stand up comedian character doing his aggressive, confrontational, uh, even hateful stand up comedy really went by poorly for me. I, I feel like I understand why they're there. But I kind of wish there was a, okay, you've already seen the movie cut that more or less eliminated those segments, because I cannot imagine (laughs) wanting to sit through them again at length. They tell you so much about his character and his character's progression. They're very important to understanding what's going on with him and to setting up some of the what comes after that, that second performance. But they're also just long and excruciatingly uh like in depth and and very uncomfortable in a way that I just can't see playing well the second time. I I kind of feel like this movie needs a second time through edit that narrows down some of these uh big emotional beats to like a more accessible okay we understand the gist we don't need to hear you telling us how much you love each other for 10 minutes straight. We get it. I don't think there's anything harder to fake in a film than stand-up comedy in a way. I don't don't know if anyone else saw the movie The Hero with with Sam Elliott that came out a a few years ago, which is whatever it's fine uh but laura prepon plays plays a stand-up comic in that it just it is just painful to watch and even in this i feel like you know obviously you're getting a twice removed artificial impression of what stand-up is like but but those those scenes are especially the one about the the one that precedes and and prefigures the murder are tough to watch i mean but but i think one thing that's not to get ahead with connections but one thing this film does have in common with one from the heart is like when I would grow tired of something, it would just be following absolutely stunning. Like, you know, either the, the ship sequence or, or, um, you know, some of the other, other scenes in, in this movie, which into the, the aria itself, like where, where Cotillard walks through into the other and in, basically into the set and it becomes like a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a different reality in, in a way or whatever's being, being conveyed there. I mean, this movie is, it's tough. It's a tough sit in a lot of ways. Uh, I think like Genevieve, I really feel like without the final dramatic scene, not counting the the bookends uh it really does all come together wait what the movie's about what this journey's been i mean it is basically a kind of ultimately a bad person's ascent to hell if i you know if, if i'm re- reading this correctly and you know you you know you leave adam driver's character in a, in a really devastated deservedly wretched state at the end of this movie um you know it, it's it's really powerful stuff adam driver has this weird quality you see it in girls and you see it, you know, first time I ever noticed him, uh, you see it even in, in, in the, in the Star Wars movie. It's like, like, where is this man? 
kind of a monster. You know, there's a, there's a real like kind of the beast from Beauty and the Beast element to so many of his performances. I mean, he can be really tender, like in a marriage story. But even there, those, like those those outbursts of rage, it's like there's something that's that's kind of like beastly about him too. And 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 this this film plays into that really well. It's always interesting to me to think about how often Adam Driver is utilized in a quote unquote comedic role. Like like Girls was a comedy. He's a comedian here. He's hosted Saturday Night Live like three times because he's like not an actor I think of as funny, but he can he can perform funny, I guess, but just his demeanor just has this kind of natural maybe aggression. But also like gloweringness to it, and it's certain. I think in this case, it makes for a very interesting take on a certain type of comedian, and the type of comedy that we see Henry do is much more like in the vein of performance art. Like I, I, I struggle to come up with any sort of like modern analog to like exactly what he is doing on stage. It's um, a little Lenny Bruce, yeah, but like Lenny Bruce from Lenny, you know, versus the actual Lenny Bruce, yeah. right? Which was, you know, not that big a difference, but but you know, that's how yeah. that's what it brought to mind for me. I would also say it starts off as Stephen Wright, and then as it visibly morphs into something more personal and off the cuff, it actually reminded me of some of the things that caused Tignataro to break out, where mm. she, I mean, she literally bared herself on stage. And that's kind of what made her famous was kind of, I mean, like literally taking her shirt off, but also symbolically just kind of bearing her agony to the audience. And, you know, that came out very differently. It came from a very different place. But I felt like that was part of what they were trying to kind of metaphorically channel here. The first time I noticed Adam Driver, I think as an actor, I enjoyed him on Girls, but I think it was it was in While We're Young. Where he plays, I think, what what might be like the first classic millennial performance. And I mm. think it really does play on what you guys were both talking about, how it's riding the line between comedy and something beastly. By the end of that movie, he's supposed to be the villain, really, again. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone. But uh, but I, I, I do think that there there is something about him that's... That's very self-deprecating. That's that's used extremely well in an ep. But it, it goes back to what you were just saying too, Tasha, about meta in movies. I totally dig on meta, but watching Annette, I've come to realize that there are several different shades of meta. Like mm. like it's not just that that first opening musical number that you notice, but there's actually a prefatory section before that where you hear a voice saying do not breathe, do not talk, mm, do right. not fart, only do these things in your head. And I think because it's so in the early in the movie and you're so excited just to see a movie, you don't really think too much about that. But that's the bad kind of meta that I think exists like threaded throughout Annette where it's almost too showy and too proud of itself in a weird way. Like it's so uh, flaunts its ideas and it's it reminded me in certain cases of student filmmaking. And I say this with love because I, I think I was once a student filmmaker myself, but I, but I, where where it seems like the filmmaker is just coming up with their ideas for the first time and no one has ever had them before, and I think that Annette is is extremely proud of its of its own controversial provocativeness almost to a point where it will overstay its welcome not just in the comedy scenes but do we need a scene of Henry McHenry in a club singing in a bathroom? 
with girls around him. Do you remember that scene in the movie? Mm -hmm. Like there's such an overindulgence to this film that I know that people are going to love and and find endearing because it goes there. But I think there's a part of me that, to your point, Tasha, wishes that it was kind of reined in a little bit or had another pass through editing. More disciplined. It's a weird thing to say about a movie that's so deliberately sprawling and again operatic i mean marion cotillard's character is an opera singer we we see her performing opera on the stage her big performance literally ends with her singing and now i die i die i'm dying i'm I'm dying this is me dying i'm dying now and then lying down and dying and i kind of thought you know that is the mode for a lot of this film is people singing very literally what they're feeling what they're thinking in a way, you know, Genevieve kind of tapped into it when we were talking about One from the Heart. In certain kinds of musicals, you expect people to be bursting into song because they have something they want to express. But here, the most banal things that they're experiencing and feeling get expressed along with the big apparatic things. The secret things and the public things, the the small conversational things, and the like, just laying out details and plans things, like all get sung. And it is kind of part of that that feeling of lack of discipline. Maybe this goes to the thing you were talking about, Joshua, last week in terms of not feeling a unifying aesthetic in the lighting and and cinematography. Here, I'm I was kind of looking for a, a slightly more unified concept of as we're singing all of these things. Like, are these are these secret feelings? Are these sometimes people are singing just because they're talking to each other? Mm. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but so to back up, the the songs are also very repetitive. Like they say the same lines over and over and over again. Uh, we love each other so much is obviously the the pinnacle of that. But I think, you know, and so may we start uh, at the beginning. That's a, another one, like just where the same line is repeated over and over again. And for the first like half hour or so of this movie, I was really tapped into it and reading it as a commentary on the life of a performer and in extending that to the repetitiveness of the music and sort of the repetitiveness of being a performer and doing the same thing every night and channeling human emotion in the same way every night and trying to be authentic in doing it. And they both of these characters are doing that in very different ways through her through singing and him through through his uh, quote-unquote comedy. So at that early stage in the film, I was kind of processing the music on that level. I mean, like, okay, this is kind of interesting, merged with all the artifice of, of this film. I, I, I'm kind of in- interested to see where this is going. And then it went in a very different direction. And like those themes don't entirely disappear, but they definitely feel less central than they did it to me in those early scenes. And the music kind of lost the connection to that theme uh, as well. I, I completely resonate with everything you're saying now, Genevieve. And it also, for me, is that's very much what Sparks is about. And I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. Their music is very minimal and it is very repetitive. And and uh, I don't know if they have the melodies. I mean, call me. I, I sound like such a such a, a an establishment guest you have this week but like <laughs> i really think that musicals should have melodies i think songs should be hummable and i uh they don't have the tunes i mean i i i know i sound like irving Wahlberg right now but they just this uh, annette does not have hummable songs and i feel like that's sort of a weakness of it i i think your reading of it is very generous this idea that the repetitiveness comes from the fact that they're both performers and maybe that's a 
a deadening part of their life. Uh, and they come together and they don't have to be repetitive, but they are repetitive when they come together. The, mm-hmm. the second time when I saw it, there was a repeated line that Henry has where he says, there's so little I can do. Uh, and every time he said that, that line actually grew more substantial for me. At first, I thought that it was a sort of a general helplessness he was feeling and his career was tanking, whatever. Then I thought maybe he means it literally. It like yeah. he has so little and whereas Anne, you know, saves audiences every night and can die sp- spectacularly and has operatic talent and a voice and is a soprano. He feels like he really doesn't have talent. He's a, you know, a self-hating comedian. He has rage. He has rage <laughs> and he slays the audience where she saves the audience. I mean, and I and I, so that line, that repeated line actually was beginning to gain resonance for me. But I really do feel like there's something about Sparks's artistic mode of composition that I don't think is suited for a musical. I mean, it, it's, it's very minimalist and repetitive and Philip Glass-like and did any of you get that Philip Glass yeah, vibe? For sure. Like this I did. Yeah, uh, for for sure. I was very eyesight on the beach, especially especially the the you know, we are so in love and everything and the 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 Me Too uh sequence uh as well. It was felt very, very classy. But I I mean I like that. I want to come frankly. back to that sequence, by the way, the the Me Too sequence, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. But but the film I, um, doesn't come back to it, but we should yeah. come back to it. <laughs> right. Well well, maybe we'll get there more quickly than that. But I will say I I mean I I do like the music in this movie and I, I do think it suits the type of movie he's making which is not necessarily a, a crowd pleasing type of musical and not necessarily uh, you know I don't think this music this, this film wants to you to feel pleasant for a moment while you watch it and perhaps more pleasing music might work against what this movie is trying to do uh, the Me Too sequence uh, uh, I, I, I did get in a small discussion about this in, in, in one a film circle I, I uh, where I communicated and, and uh, that I read that as a nightmare she was having and not saying that actually happened. This is exactly uh, what I wanted to survey everyone on how they read that. No, 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 right. no, because if it is a nightmare and yes, we see her falling asleep right before it, then why would his show be canceled? I mean, it's clearly canceled in the real world, in the waking oh, world. because... But I thought that was as part of his, like, sort of, you know, sort of the uh, Star is Born arc of this, where, where her star is rising, his is falling, or perhaps, you know, he's kind of lost his edge in some way. I, I think it's, it's after that disastrous, I uh, tickled my wife to death sh- set, where, where you kind of get the sense that the public is souring on him in a way that not necessarily has anything to do with, with that sequence, which I did read as a dream. I read the six women have come forward sequence as a dream. We we literally see her fall asleep beforehand and wake up afterward. There's no sign that anybody else uh, has has experienced this thing. But I think it's channeling an actual anxiety about Ooh. his violence, about his moods. It's foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. It's, it it's laying out something that she feels, but has not articulated or has not sung to us yet. I do think that it's very weird that this movie spends more time on the the, the personal arc and uh, uh, interior interiority development of Simon Helberg than it spends yeah. on, on Marion Cotillard. I feel like he I doesn't know even more have about... a name, and he gets more. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's my, my, conductor my composer friend. <laughs> So, yeah, I definitely took that as a dream sequence, but I, I thought it was very clear that he was canceled because of that disastrous performance, because he basically he went too far. I, I think that like why I said that I found these comedy segments kind of, you know, draggy and confrontational and I didn't necessarily want to experience them again, but that I felt them necessary. I think we see in the first half 
I actually thought that the first performance that he does while tedious was very interesting in terms of from the moment he steps on stage, the audience is laughing. I think it really captures that feeling of being in a comedy setting and everybody being set up on the side of the comedian. If it's a famous person, you can often feel that energy in the room that's that's already, we're excited to be here with this famous person where we're already geared to like them. If they shuffle, you, you hear a lot of people laugh. If they drink water, you hear a lot of people laugh. They're just, they're primed. And in that first sequence, they're primed to love him. And everything he says is contemptuous and dismissive uninterested in his own art, uninterested in pressing them, and yet they laugh. And when he sings to them, laugh, they laugh. In the second sequence, he's turned it into something they don't want to hear, something personal and ugly in a way that that digs under the skin in a way that they don't like. And they turn on him. I, I thought it was fairly clear, not that his star is falling because that's the the rise and fall of fame, but that he actually has turned on the audience and the audience has turned on him in turn. I definitely like agree that that is kind of like the reading that the the movie puts out there but you know we we've already kind of talked about how this this film is kind of playing in different layers of reality so I think that's why I'm kind of tempted to read the the women coming forward as having actually happened in the world of this film and it's presented as a dream she's having because it is something that uh it it would be a nightmare for her, a, a waking nightmare, you know, uh, that, that she was living through. But the reason I took it that way was that second set of his that we see, which, and this is maybe influenced by kind of some recent uh, developments in, in comedy uh, in, in, in our world, but it read to me like an attempted comeback show. His first show back after these accusations attended by supporters who who want to, you know, believe him, who who want to, to welcome him back as, say, Louis C.K.'s shows are uh, attended now. But because of what he gave them, it was impossible for them to maintain that belief that he wasn't this monster that these women are, are saying. And that was, you know, and, and so that kind of just cemented his his cancellation, as it were. I'm not arguing that that is like the reading of the film, but I think that this film has enough wiggle room when it comes to what is real, what is artifice, what is imagination that could potentially be a reading as well. There's also, I think that there's something perverse and maybe even intentional about the fact that we are having a discussion about uh, Me Too accusations potentially just being a dream. Like, I think it might actually be a perverse part of the screenwriting, which is to say, they'll talk about this, but maybe it's just all in her head, which is exactly what women hear about and from mm-hmm. people who are, when they come forward with their accusations. Uh, and uh, do we believe them or was it just an anxiety they were feeling? It may be that this discussion that we're having right now is is actually the one that they're intending, but that in and of itself would be kind of icky to me. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that... I wish that a comedian could be canceled for one bad show, but that's never how it works, is it? You know. I guess I saw both of those shows as meaning to stand in for many other shows. I, I guess I saw that first show as indicative of this is the style of comedy that he does. It's confrontational right. and aggressive and maybe different every night, maybe rift 
And then the second one just feels like, okay, he, he's taken a turn. He's gone in a direction where the things going through his head that he tries to exercise on stage have gotten so ugly and poisonous that people can't stomach them. But also after 300 choruses of We Love Each Other So Much and those little snippets where we see <laughs> how people are, are seeing their relationship on television, how they're seeing it externally. I feel like people are maybe more invested in the fantasy they have of these celebrities' relationships and their their marriage and their child and their work than they are necessarily invested in him and his comedy. And when he puts the thing that the public values on the line, when he implies that he has either destroyed his wife or destroyed their relationship, or even that just that he's thinking about it, that that's where his head is, it's it's too much. It's too much of a threat to the thing that they most care about at this point, which is the image of the the happy couple and their adorable baby puppet. We gotta. We talk haven't about even the talked about the puppet baby yet. Oh, you guys. Especially <laughs> we're talking about what's real and what's not in this film. I mean, that is a bizarre element that I think. I, I think we have to think about this both from a thank God Scott's not here uh, element in that there are just so many <laughs> things that go on in this film that would be extremely hard to do with an actual child. I, I do think that there's probably a level on which the choice to have this be a, a very consciously artificial puppet was just a matter of practicality for what they needed the child to pull off, what they needed it to communicate. But I think it's also a big sim symbolic thing about particularly how uh, Henry sees this child as sort of an object, as uh, sort of a an unreal thing that's been inserted into his life that's strange and surreal and, and not entirely human. And I think it's very significant that the moment where it stops being a puppet is the moment where he's forced to contend with uh, this child's humanity. Yeah, he also has that fantasy before Annette is born of seeing Annette come out and she has like uh, clown makeup on. Yep. Mm, Do you remember right. that? Where yeah. yes. So I, very very Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Right, right. I and I feel like um, I feel obviously that that prefigures the actual Annette who arrives and is kind of puppet like. But it might be his anxiety of you know he has this uh, woman who he clearly idolizes and and that the product of their love together even though they say they love each other so much is going to be something fake and like a, a like almost a comedian's idea of what a baby would be you know like it would be it would be ruined because of because he's so self-hating like and this is the only thing and then are we also supposed to believe that that scene where he sits on Annette when he's babysitting and you hmm. see that he's accidentally sat on the puppet is that also fantasy or is that real Who's to say? Or does I, I it reflect I, I, something that's real, but in a symbolic way? Right. Or, yeah. or I mean, what what do you guys? Th I mean, it's there's so much, so many layers to this, and I I don't even know if the film has it figured out. Yeah, nor nor do I. It's a, it's a disturbing moment. <laughs> I, I I will say I, I do. I do love the puppet. I, I do, and I find the puppet moving, and I find the puppet moving in the same way that, like, you know, like uh, Tintin or something, where there, where a cartoon where not all the details are filled in, where you kind of project your own emotions onto it. I, I it's a really striking creation, and and I thought it was, you know, I think that there might have been a practical matter behind that choice, but I mean, but it, it's really works. I, I find myself pondering like why it works. Like why do I find that scene 
where Cotillard's body floats by the bed where the puppet is, you know, is placed. Why do I find that so, so, you know, upsetting and, and moving in a strange way? And I, I don't have an answer for it. I think it's just puppet magic or something. <laughs> I mean, I think we're primed as humans to anthropomorphize things that, that look remotely human. I think the puppet always looks wiser than its child years and very sad and very knowing. Mm. I, it really strongly evoked the Gelflings from the Dark Crystal for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the the big protruding ears and the particular features of the face seemed really familiar to those like little wizened, wise behind beyond their years, like sad and lonely creatures. But it also kind of evokes the humanity of the puppets in Anomalisa, uh, which just kept kind of coming back to me mentally during all of this. Those are definite references that struck me as well. And also the whole final section of the film feels very much like King Kong to me. Um, this idea of the performing Annette and, mm. and everyone, you have to see the star and the crowds that gather. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel an enormous sympathy for King Kong. That's another puppet from early cinema that um, <laughs> that uh, I think is like like you say, anthropomorphized, and um, and we bring that into our heart. And I feel like Annette is supposed to be like a sort of performing monkey at that point, and it is exploited by her father, and I guess by the conductor, a friend. great ape himself, right? The- <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the that's the subtext of this whole thing. And I, I think just kind of on a like baseline thematic level, like having. Annette be a puppet without a voice of like a speaking voice of her own, you know, like I'm correct me if I'm wrong. She never speaks uh, in her puppet form, only sings. Well, and what she says at uh, the hyperbole at the, at the hyperbole, which as a fan of wordplay, like I had to bump this, uh, this movie <laughs> like up half a grade just for hyperbole uh, <laughs> slash hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> just yes. I, that was that's very clever. But anyway, going back to the, the puppet, like her, you know, not having her own words to speak and being kind of physically manipulated by other people, you know, she's often being carried around and her limbs are being moved, you know, by other people. And I think it's just maybe just kind of commenting at least in the early going on how like new parents place just kind of all their, their hopes and and their, their identities themselves into their child, you know, that when the child hasn't like formed their own personality yet, it's all just kind of what the parents are projecting onto the child as, as it were. And then later in the film, I think that kind of translates into maybe being less about a parent child relationship and more about a, like a performer manager relationship and kind of, you know, I, I thought about Britney Spears, uh, you know, uh, in those scenes. And obviously her taking a human form at the end and her in uh, Henry seeing her as a as a person, you know, at, at this any moment. I think that's what just made the, you know, it's like a nice little pin drop moment and where this the arc of Annette lands, you know, it's like, oh, that's what that character's purpose was. Doesn't Carax dedicate the film to his own daughter? Isn't that the dedication at the end? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that's and her, she's a, she's, she's in her the beginning, beginning right? right? Yeah, and I think her name is I want to say Nastya. I'm not. I forget. I think that's her name though. That's yes, this, Nastya. Yeah, this is a strange film to dedicate to one's own daughter. Goodness, uh, I, 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 <laughs> I don't true. have a problem saying that, but 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 it's because it kind of is about 
absentee parenting in a weird way or irresponsible parenting and also portrays children as props. It's a very strange, its take on children is, is very strange. And I know that the males don't have children either. So I, I do wonder where this film comes from in there, you know, why this, this, this musical was some, something they very much wanted for years and years to get made. I do feel like the uh, you, you referenced earlier the idea that Henry loves and idolizes his wife. I'm not entirely sure that's true. I feel like the repetition of we love each other so much comes in part from a place of them trying to convince themselves. Like there's so yeah, little that goes point. on besides sex and posing for the camera and singing these things to each other and to themselves over and over and over. And it kind of feels like when Annette comes along, she's a, a prop in their ongoing story of how beautiful their love is and how important their love is, which is, again, as, as Genevieve pointed out with One from the Heart and, and here, both, uh, they're performers. They're, they're presenting this image to the cameras that it's got kind of a, a Brad and Angelina vibe to it all, just in terms of like, we have to be the perfect couple. We have to be the perfect parents. And for each of them, their, their performances and their career are, these objects that are you know, used for profit. And then when Annette comes, she eventually becomes an object to be used mm-hmm. for profit too. Uh, it just, it feels like kind yeah. of turning branding and imagery into a, a business is a, a big theme of this film. I got that feeling too, the idea that they were trying to convince themselves that they love each other so much. And then the conductor feels doomed in a way because he's the only person that like his his branding, his his self branding first as the awkward accompanist who wants to be a conductor and then as the conductor, which is the only identity he gets, feels again like something that he's kind of trying to sell to the world. But at the same time, his dreams are so interior, he doesn't really share them with anybody else. And then when he gets to experience them, he shares both his needs with the audience and then he shares his triumph with the audience. But everything else, he's pretty authentic. He's authentic with Annette. He's authentic with uh, Henry. And he suffers for it. He he is like less prominent in this world than anyone. He doesn't have something to sell, per se. Uh, he just has himself. And in the end, it's not enough. I do like the performance, and and I, I interviewed Helberg for for GQ, and a lot of what you know. We need to move on to Trent, to, to connections, but one thing we ended up talking about a lot was just the level of difficulty of making this film for everyone, but from his perspective, like there were just the scene where he is conducting. He's actually conducting, and Helberg has a musical background, but he'd never conducted before, and he's and he's conducting, but also singing, and also like conveying like these the deepest emotions this character feels and and, and uh while the camera like spins around with this caroxian like, precision or whatever you want to call it, it it is it is an astonishing just on a technical level just just an astonishing accomplishment and and i don't know i i i'll be thinking about this film a lot i, I don't know that it's a film I, I can put my arms around and and hold it close to my heart but it's certainly a, a film i'm glad i saw and i'm glad it exists so anyway we'll, we'll talk about it some more uh, when we're after the break, when we talk about connections and bring back for an encore performance, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola's one from the heart. This is how I killed my wife. Sick. 
I sense some animosity. My right throws at me. You must have bitten something bitter in your cradle. We didn't bit our cradle. So why did I become a comedian? Not, not, not anymore. So why did I become a comedian? Asshole, asshole, sit, sit, sit. Okay. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And I feel like there's a lot, uh, both uh, superficial and 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 uh, specific in, in in these two films. Uh, I, one thing, you know, I, uh, we want to talk about is just just the 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 bigness of it all, of the, of the uh, of the filmmaking, which we kind of alluded to, toward, especially toward the end of that last discussion and, uh, and of the emotions. There is literally an opera singer uh, in one of these films. Uh, Tasha, do you want to you want to run with that, these ideas? Sure. I mean, I, I feel like we could spend this entire time just talking about the small connections of which there are so many. I, I feel like Karax must have been openly referencing this movie. Like one of the biggest ones being, I guess a lot of movies open with uh, curtains opening, but it just really struck me that both of these movies open that way. But when it comes down to things like there being a scene where where Hank conducts and it's maybe his most emotional and, and likable moment in the movie. And then we get an entire character whose only desire in life is to be a conductor. You, you can't tell me that he wasn't thinking of one from the heart. <laughs> but with that in mind, one from the heart, like what what stands out about it, what makes it so memorable to us, even as we resist some of its desires, some of its storytelling uh, and its conclusion. It was shot entirely on sound stages. It presents a very false front version of Vegas that is sometimes literally looking off into the distance of a uh, like beyond a set and seeing what isn't is not much more than a, a stylized painting of Vegas. In the sequence where Ray and Franny dance together, where there's a, a painting of a cruise ship, a very stylized, cartoony cruise ship in the background, and they're uh, dancing together in this uh, very artificial, like, magical fantasy space, you understand that what's being conveyed here is what they're feeling, what they want, what they're thinking. Uh, so much of that carries over to Annette in, in much darker ways, I think. What stands out for me most is the scene on the boat, which we haven't talked about much. Uh, Keith characterized mm -hmm. Henry as having murdered his wife. And I'm not sure that I would put it that way. It feels more like... I almost piped up too. It's, it's something we can <laughs> yeah, talk about in another okay. connection, I think. But but to me... He, he did not he did not, murder yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. He was very irresponsible. Yes. He, he created yeah. conditions under which she could die and then did nothing to stop her from dying and then convinced himself that he was incapable, which is untrue. So, like, he's, he's definitely guilty. I just I'm not sure that I would call it murder legally, uh, second degree murder or manslaughter, but, uh, you know, morally being an asshole. That's as maybe that entire <laughs> sequence just so clearly takes place on like a tilting prop with uh, rear screen projections of just impossibly high waves, uh, waves either seen in close up or um, just juxtaposed against the ship in a way that make them look insurmountable, terrifying, uh, overwhelming, but also very, very artificial, very consciously artificial as a very conscious backdrop. It's another operatic moment using technology that you might see on stage 
with a moving prop and a, a backdrop, a moving backdrop to give an impressionistic idea of a storm. But it's being presented in a story that in at many times takes place in actual spaces, actual exteriors and interiors that feel real. And then the artificiality of sort of the stage set where Henry and Annette end up after they come ashore from the storm. Like these are, are very outside of reality moments where, again, it feels like you're maybe channeling what is real through Henry's kind of level of, of drunkenness and delusion and desire to see the, the world a certain way. I think both of these films, to some degree, see the world through their male main character much more than their, their female lead. And I think both of them head pretty far into subjectivity in terms of, of what we see and what it means. They both also love rear projection. <laughs> they love rear projection, except when they don't. And there's a, I mean, I love your, the way you talk about how uh, Annette focuses on that, um, well, the boat scene, like you were just saying, and how expressly artificial it is. And it's okay, a stage on that it's a false stage that's pivoting and swaying. But then Annette also includes that amazing moment where she, uh, where Anne is singing on stage and then walks into a real forest, mm-hmm. a walk, that, and, and you're so so it's actually striving for an element of realism. Or wh- my favorite shot in the whole film is when Henry and Anne are on the motorcycle singing and they're really driving up into the Hollywood Hills and with see, no helmets on, right? With <laughs> no helmets on it, and and the whole time I'm like, wow, that's really dangerous. And also, this is such a Caraxian moment, right? You know, yeah. this is so killer and it's so. Uh, lovers on the bridge and you really get a sense of romance and i really wanted the whole movie to be kind of like that those that sort of daring and i think his especially the movies caraxes made with denny levant really do channel that vibe of of physical daring and romanticism of putting yourself in danger but um so so it was it does exist in that in that weird balance between hyper strange artifice and hyper real gestures like that motorcycle ride I like the mix. You you brought up the scene of her uh, kind of wandering off stage into uh, the you know a, a real forest, and it reminded me that we also have a similar, maybe inverse shot of Henry uh, entering the stage a, a couple times, right. like moving from backstage onto stage, and I think kind of going back to the idea of you know the film's interest in them as as performers and the artifice that comes with that, this sort of transition between the realness of the backstage or offstage area and moving onto the stage and back and forth between them is maybe also kind of an extension of the film's loose relationship with reality. And I think there's, with one from the heart, you know, there's not like literal stages necessarily, but there are movements into performance-based spaces, you know, of course, the spilling out onto the onto the strip for that that big dance number, but also what precedes that uh, of, of uh, Ray and Franny, you know, doing the tango uh, in front of that boat. So it also kind of has those moments of like, we are on a stage and we are we are performing now, you know, and also one from the heart, like, I mean, this is like a very obvious observation, but I feel like it has to be made in the context of this connection. Like Franny is a window dresser. Like she's literally creating scenes, artificial scenes, you know, that's, that's the first, that's how we meet her. It's how Ray meets her. You know, there it's, it's very much 
tied into that character and and her relationships, the idea of fantasy. Obviously, she's like working for a travel agency. Escape is built into that, but also artifice. Did it throw anybody else that uh, tickets from Vegas to New York City were like $400 (laughs) round trip? I'm just I'm so used to seeing things in older films uh, being so much cheaper than you expect. And like there's there's a later sign advertising like a the deluxe buffet that comes with uh, like crab on it. Yeah, it's like three ninety five. Yeah, it's three ninety five. <laughs> but it's also uh, three hundred sixty five dollars round trip to fly to New York. And I'm like, I could get you a better deal than that. You don't want to use that travel agency. <laughs> travel agency itself being a very, very dated uh, 80s idea. Yeah. But that said, so the other aspect, one other aspect of the the high artifice of both of these movies is the way the main characters interact with other people. And I, I, I was, in fact, thinking about the scene on the strip where all of these other people exist only to like pick up Franny and twirl her around or like place her on top of a car roof or serve as a colorful backdrop for the dances that are going on. Like, the world is basically a backdrop to her story in that moment. And it reminds me very much of the way the way that Annette deals with Henry on stage, where he's singing his song and the audience is participating in it. They know their lines. He he sings laugh and they laugh melodically and and on key in chorus, or they sing these, you know, why did you become a comedian things in in perfect chorus, representing all of the things that the world is asking him, because they're just a grand unified background amalgam of people. And I think both of these movies use that idea of everybody else is just a a vast mob of everybody else most of the time uh, idea. And it's like a wish fulfillment, too. I've interviewed many comedians over the years, and I've never once asked them, why did you become a comedian? <laughs> that's not that's not an obvious question to ask a comedian, but the, but the script turns it into one, and I think very intentionally, because I, I think it's, it's supposed to be an expression of when his act is working. And, and it's almost like from his fantasy perspective of the perfect audience for his perfect sense of seething art. There's a lot of seething in both these films, <laughs> and 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 a lot of it has to do with with the, the central romances. These are both films about difficult relationships. One obviously turns even more toxic than the other. But Franny and 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 Hank, you know, we've we've pointed to a few instances of really kind of awful behavior on on Hank's part. I mean, it is in its own way an, an abusive relationship as well. I mean, I mean, you know, we were alluded in a previous discussion to the scene of him just kind of grabbing her nude and and and, and throwing her in the car. You know, his his infidelities are no big deal. Her like you know semi only only. Semi-intentional, uh, uh, indiscretion with, with Harry Dean Stanton's character is, is, is a tremendous sin. It's, it's, it's tempestuous stuff here. I mean, uh, do we want to talk about the way these, these deal with these strong relationships differently or, or, or in the same way in some aspects? Well, just on a very like simple storytelling level, both of these movies start like with the relationships in, in media res, <laughs> you know, like we, mm-hmm. we like these uh, relationships are already established, obviously the one and one from the heart for a much longer period of time. But we don't get that experience of the meet cute or, or just like seeing how the how the couples fell in love. We see them like convincing themselves they're still in love, whether through a highly repetitive song or through sad living room sex, you know? And 
I think maybe that's why one from the hearts ending just falls a little flat because we never really get a sense of this couple, what they like about each other, what, you know, it's all very like property based, you know, like, like she belongs to him and I guess he belongs to her, but, but it's not like we don't know why they like each other, why they want to be together. It's just like, uh, almost an inertia based argument for the, for their relationship. Right. right. And you're both and in both films we're talking about distinctly unlikable main characters, unlikable men. Uh, and I think that in both films the the men are are directed in an ape-like way. I mean in in, in the case of Annette you actually have his act being called right the the, the ape of god. And God, the ape of God, and he is the ape of God. That's how he's announced by the MC before he goes out and, uh, you know, stubs a banana into the cigarette ashtray. And, and it's, there's something very crude about, uh, the way we were talking about this last week about how Frederick Forrest's hair is styled and how just you know, blah he looks and, and ugly almost. Uh, I mean, I think it is diplomatic and, uh, generous of us to, to compare him to a character like Stanley Kowalski in a way. It's, this is a very, um, almost a unfilled, crude character shape that he's forced to fill. And, and sometimes I watch the movie and I feel like Frederick Forrest doesn't really have the chops to fill it with as much emotions as I need it to work. Um, and they are not deserving. Uh, in my opinion, they're not deserving of these women in either case, in either film. Even if we uh, think that the the serial, serial abuse in Annette is a dream uh, and perhaps an expression of her anxiety, but not real, uh, you're still talking about an abusive character that uh, would let his wife come to harm, would potentially sit on his own baby, has, you know, bad instincts as a as a husband and as a father. And I think the same can be said of, of, uh, of Hank as well. And yet, you know, at least in the case of one from the heart, uh, he, he's, he gets his way at the end. He has this magical dream fantasy ending, which is completely unearned in a way. I, I wonder if that's an expression of the, of these, uh, directors, writer directors, uh, and, you know, they're, they're putting these white guys at the center of their film and they haven't really thought to flesh them out because they thought we would do that for them or if it's something deeper. I mean, I think in the case of Annette, there it, it's very purposeful that we are to think of Henry as as a brute. And uh, I mean, it, this is probably the point where I have to bring up the tickling. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe, unpleasant. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, I will I will come off a little curmudgeonly when I say this, but I, well before this film, I am strongly anti tickling. I, I think it is a form of assault. I, I know, scientifically speaking, that our that when we laugh after being tickled, it is a panic response, um, not a response of happiness. And I think the way that it is deployed here with uh, us first seeing him tickle her in this supposedly loving manner, but that becomes quickly apparent in that scene and especially subsequent scenes is a, a form of control and abuse. And... Um, I, uh, I, I was, I, I was basically like anti Henry from from the tickling onward, and I was kind of gratified to see it come back in his second act as sort of the him killing her by tickling her being what uh, turns the audience off of him. 
I think that that fantasy that he spends out of killing her by tickling her is maybe a subconscious understanding of the degree to which he uses tickling to physically control her and do what he wants to her. Like it's a it is a form of assault that he can carry out because he's stronger than her. And it, it feels like he's fantasizing a little bit about having control over her because he doesn't in, in their life. She's more successful than he is. Her stars on the rise, his stars on the wane. And there's just that aggressiveness that is, is very sublimated throughout the movie that I, again, still think she recognizes in a dream rather than in reality, but she's aware of it subconsciously and turns it into a dream. He's aware of it subconsciously and turns it into a, a stage fantasy. I think that it all gets very, you know, psychologically complicated compared to one from the heart, which again, just literally has a man grabbing his naked, not even girlfriend at that point, <laughs> uh, the object of his desire out of her lover's bed, carrying her publicly through the streets, throwing her into the car. It's, it's all, it's caveman behavior. And then when he turns mm -hmm. to her and yells at her to cover herself up, like it's her fault that she's naked after what he just did. It, it's just kind of, you know, the ultimate statement in like, why did, why do you make me gotta hit you? You know, the, the abuser's yeah. justification mm -hmm. for, for behavior. I think it's really interesting that in both films, the women in the relationship don't respect the men's interiority either. I, there's just, there's no sense, I think, at any point that either Franny or Anne necessarily understands uh, they the the speeches in one from the heart we haven't touched up the whole i you know she doesn't understand men uh, he doesn't understand women you know they're they're both feeling the same level of rejected and misunderstood and i think that that's also going on to some degree in a net without being stated as overtly i i do think that even though henry is ends up being more violent and acting out more publicly and with more far more terrible results i think that they both feel just as kind of misunderstood and distanced from each other and that's that's part of what i get from the endless choruses of we love each other so much with no detail no no thoughts no reasons just self-reassurance maybe it's also obvious to add that um tickling could be could be called the comedian's like last resort right because it's basically <laughs> just the physical act of of forcing a laugh out out of someone that they can't even resist doing, you know, and and I mm. feel like that also speaks to an anxiety of Henry McHenry, which is that he he doesn't have control over his act, even though his audiences are trained to respond on cue um, and be a part of the performance, like you were saying, Tasha. He 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 doubts, I think, his own talent. I think that that's part of it. It's, it's kind of a self-hating doubt. And so tickling someone is, well, it's sort of like a go-to. Like you can force the laugh out if you need, um, mm -hmm. which is really sad. He yeah. sings about how much he hates making people laugh. He he talks about like what a low profession it is. It seems interesting that sort of what he's best at is something he hates in himself and he hates his audience for going along with it. And he treats them with contempt for it. And it kind of feels like that's his his way of looking at all things. I think that's pretty deeply buried in his relationship with Anne as well. Like, maybe she does love him so much. Maybe she does idolize him. But if so, I, I think he holds her in contempt for it because he has low self-esteem himself. And he has that feeling of, well, if you love me, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah, he doesn't think that he deserves it. 
And then he sings that little song about how uh, how hot women are. Like after neglectfully killing his wife, uh, seeing his self-pity as he thinks about how hot women are and how much they're hot for him, and yet he doesn't feel lovable somehow. Like, no, once again, you've you've cut to the point here. You understand yourself. Uh, you are inherently unlovable. I just can't feel any uh, any pity for you because of it. Yeah, he sings, when will I be lovable again? That like he honestly wants the answer to that question, which, you know, actually dovetails nicely with the last idea of the film, which is that he will never be able to love anything again. And he tells Annette, well, can I love you, Annette? And she says, no, not really. So it, it, he robs himself even of his own ability to love, which is questionable to begin with. You know, that we never really talked about that final duet in Annette where the puppet stops being a puppet mm. and becomes a small child and the small child yeah. gives an incredible performance. Right. In, Long takes. Like, yeah. in, so in a duet with Adam yeah. Driver, like holding her own, aggressively facing off with him. And I think in a, in a movie that is so operatic, that is about such big emotions and that is, as we're talking right now, about such poisonous relationships in both cases. It's interesting that to see that basically what she's doing is refusing to be poisoned. She sees her mother as having been poisoned by the relationship. She is a character that there is no like analogous character in one from the heart. There's no next generation. There's nobody to come along after the fact and say, it stops here. Like we're, we're not continuing the cycle of abuse. I'm not letting you do to me what you did to my mother. But that's what we get at the end of uh, Annette is effectively, you destroyed my mother, you destroyed the man that may have been my father, but you won't destroy me because I'm not going to let you. Uh, that young actress's name, by the way, is Devin McDowell. And I just want to call her out because she is pretty fantastic in that short little bit. Just unbelievable. Yeah, it made me wonder if they, if they if they they fashioned the puppet to look like her, or if they found an actress to look like the puppet. I'm not sure <laughs> how the production of this of this film uh, worked. Uh, before we leave the relationships aside, we should talk at least briefly about about sex in both of these films, which I think kind of capture the eras in which they were made, in which the nudity and sex in one from the heart. While we agree, uh, Leary at a couple of moments is is a little more casual, a little more like part of the fabric of the film. And I think they're trying, you know, I, th I think there is an attempt to do that with the sex scenes here, uh, which have kind of unfortunately been the result. You know, the result has been a lot of, 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 of tittering on the internet. And maybe, maybe I just, I'm once again paying too much attention to what gets said on, on Twitter, but it felt like all people could talk about was the oral sex scene, uh, in, in this, which is like, uh, a two second shot in yeah. this film. <laughs> and it, it, it is, it is, I feel like in some ways the relative sexlessness of current cinema is in some ways our, our punishment for, for not responding to it well. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think that shot goes on a lot longer than you think it does. Him looking up from, you know, nose deep in her groin to sing, we love each other so much may only last two seconds, but the slow pan across her, her body from her head down as she kind of decorously covers her own breasts as he's going down on her does feel like an attempt to not be leering about something that's intimate. And then we, we go directly into a bunch of stuff that does feel very leering, that is very the much, much more so uh, graphic and focused on their, their naked bodies. Of all of the things they do while singing, we love each other so much. 
the idea of pausing in the midst of oral sex for them to reaffirm it to each other just feels like one of the bigger symbolic moments in a, a movie that is absolutely jam-packed with symbolic moments. It's it's like Patrick Bateman looking at himself having sex in the mirror in American Psycho. It's yeah. like Hank setting up a mirror to try to watch himself having sex and one from the heart and uh, briefly flexing in the mirror and then kind of going, ah, I don't know if this is going to work and shrugging it <laughs> off. You know, there's a an awareness of themselves as having sex and therefore convincing each other. You know, we we know we love each other so much because we're having this this sex right now, but they have to sex to remind themselves that they're having sex and that that's a a loving thing. It's again, it feels maybe a little meta, but also just very performative. Like they're they're performing for an unseen audience, which doesn't necessarily feel like us. It feels more like like them. I think it's also worth noting in terms of what you said, Keith, about the sort of nudity and one from the heart being a little more part of the fabric of the film and viewers then having maybe a different relationship with on screen sex. But like we don't actually see uh, much in the way of sex acts in, in one from the heart. You know, it's a mm-hmm. kind of traditional lights down or, uh, you know, sitting in bed after the fact with the covers pulled up around your, your chest kind of uh, presentation of, of couples having sex. And compared to uh, Annette, like, you know, yes, it's highly stylized, but it's also like frank about the act that is being performed you know it's it's specific and um in in one from the heart it's you know we see the sort of the preparations and the in the aftermath and the nudity surrounding it because obviously we need to get the nudity in there but there's not as much interest in seeing the act itself maybe that's because in one for the heart Sex is kind of considered sort of the ultimate thing that the characters take for themselves. Like sex is a private matter because it's for the two people having sex, whereas the sex in Annette always seems like it's for that unseen audience, that implied audience of that they're performing for. I mean, any other connections we should we should bring up? Does anyone else see any? Like, I mean, there's there's a lot between these films, and I think we're already long, but we can go longer, at least a little bit longer. Anything else that uh, kind of uh, you feel like draws these films together? Yeah, I mean, I think we can do sort of like, you know, drive by glancing uh, looks at a a couple of connections. Uh, One thing like I wanted to discuss, but I feel like we've already kind of talked uh, around it a a fair bit is just the the settings of of these films. Um, Obviously, one from the heart is very much engaged with its its uh, version of Vegas. And Annette is, you know, takes place in uh, in Los Angeles, mostly, although we we do uh, get a a jaunt to, to Europe, you know, but it is sort of, you know, these are these are LA people. I guess uh, for for the for lack of a better way to talk about it, um, but you know they're also both towns that are presented again to go back to our first connection very artificially. You know there is again especially in one from the heart, it's very clear that this is a construct of Vegas, uh, a visual construct of Vegas, and I feel like maybe in Annette it's a little more of a a thematic construct of of, of LA again kind of tying into the ideas of performance and artifice and all these things that these characters kind of embody and at the same time wrestle with. So that was one that, you know, I, I think we've kind of said our, our our piece about that, unless anyone has anything to note about the the settings here. 
All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just another one to kind of, I wanted to glance at, uh, you know, we didn't, I don't think we ever specifically said it, but in that, you know, these actors are, are singing their, their, their own singing voices, um, sometimes more, more obviously than others, you know, so there's sort of a, a double threat happening here in terms of the, the actual performance we're, we're seeing on screen. And in one from the heart, the actors aren't singing necessarily, but there is a lot of dancing and high wire act and circus acts in, uh, in Natasha Kinski's case. So just again, to kind of go back to the idea of, you know, performance and artifice being kind of threaded through both of these, these films, I think like leaning in to having your performers do a little more, you know, let, let, like put a little extra performance out there, whether it's singing their own songs or dancing their own dancing or performing stand-up comedy or whatever. There's just like, a, a, there's performances within performances in both of these films. And maybe and, that comes a little bit with uh, the way both of them, I, I think uh, One from the Heart is less obviously bookended with this was a story uh, storytelling than Annette, right. but I, I think it is there specifically in uh, Tom Waits' singing. I, I think he kind of opens it up with a, you know, this is a town and this is where a story is taking place, and then ends by singing about, you know, this this was one from the heart. This is a story that's that's personal to these people, that is emotional to these people. I, I feel like both of these movies have a very distinctive awareness of the degree to which a love story is always kind of an, an artificial construct in movies. You know, it's it's heavily simplified, it's mm -hmm. heavily compacted. And presenting it to you as a story, conscious of a story, is kind of a way of excusing any any bumps along the road, anything that feels like it was left out. It's it's just kind of a way of saying, you know, and it was ever thus. This is this is how humanity goes. We fall in love, we fall out of love, we fall back in love. Well, we we began with artifice, and I think we we can end with artifice as <laughs> sort of the the overarching connection and all these other connections. I think that's an appropriate place to end with yeah. with both these films. Uh, but of course, we're you know as usual, we'll we'll, we'll continue this discussion via feedback. I think there's going to be some strong reactions, uh, especially to Annette. Um, and also, you know, check out One for the Heart while you're at it. One for the Heart is available uh, for digital rental or purchase on, on many of the usual services. There's also a sadly out of print DVD version, which has a lot of cool extras on it. Um, you know, some fairly frank extras, frank uh, about about the uh, the rise and fall of this particular era of, of uh, Coppola's zoetrope uh, and, and a commentary from Coppola, which is, of course, quite good as well. Uh, Net is in select theaters and streaming on Amazon Prime. We'll be right back with your next picture show. But finally, it's time for your next picture show where we catch each other up on films or film-related items you may want to seek out as well. Josh, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Oh, well, last night, I got the opportunity to see Julia Ducanar's Titan, the Palme d'Or winning Titan, or Titan, I don't know how we're supposed to be pronouncing its title. Mm. Um, it is a brace for awesomeness. It's coming out, actually, in October, I believe, but it's, and Neon is releasing it, but this is a this is an incredible film that has a lot of J.G. Ballard to it and a lot of Cronenberg as well, body horror. It's about a, I don't want to ruin anything. The easiest way to just to simply describe it is about 
a young woman who has sex with a car. And we'll leave it at that. And uh, but it also has this kind of like sneaky element of uh, compassion about it, where uh, there's a sort of an acceptance and a, and a forgiveness, uh, regardless of ethical shortcomings. That's very moving. So it's it feels like the full experience. Uh, Julia is definitely the real deal. I don't know if you any of you saw Raw, um, mm-hmm. which is a very hard film to watch. This is uh, has moments that are equally as um, uh, you know, off-putting, I guess you could say, but they're thrilling and there's a great sense of command and confidence in this film. Uh, very worthy winner of the Palme d'Or. And when you start hearing about Titan or however we all decide to pronounce it, definitely keep that one on your radar. I had no idea what that movie was about. And now I think I know less about what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good that, um, I'm, that I'm definitely serving the film because the less you know about it, the the better you are. But I, but I did like Raw a lot, in, in, you know, although it was tough to watch, as you, as you say. So, yeah. so I do look forward to it. Jenny, how about you? What have you seen lately? <laughs> uh, well, I, again, kind of just screaming over to the other end of, of, of the spectrum here. I've been doing, uh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of comfort viewing in my in my moving watching of, of, of late. Can't imagine why. Um, but I mentioned last week, uh, recently revisiting Pride and Prejudice, which is an old favorite. And this past weekend, I uh, revisited or. No, just earlier this week, I uh, revisited another old favorite inspired by... Okay, I'm going to back up just to tell the little story of what inspired this. Um, so, uh, we're recording this the week after The White Lotus aired its finale. And uh, at Vulture, uh, we ran a, a post-finale interview with Mike White, um, the creator of, of White Lotus. It was a big interview by Catherine Van Arendonk. It's very good. I, I edited it. Um, if you watch the show, I highly recommend that you, you read it. So, we published it on Monday. It was out there. It was tweet, you know, getting tweeted a lot. I'm seeing all the reactions, and probably one in third of the reactions to this article, of which the uh, lead photo is Mike White, is people going Ned Schneebly. I didn't know Ned Schneebly made made the White Lotus, and they are of course referring to Mike White's character from the School of Rock, uh, which he also wrote and appears in as Ned Schneebly, whose identity Jack Black steals uh, in order to kind of uh, dragoon a classroom of children into becoming his his backup band. Um, It's directed by Richard Linklater, came out in 2003. I imagine most people listening to this podcast have seen it, um, and I maybe enjoyed it. I don't know. I don't know if School of Rock is like what the the critical consensus on, on School of Rock is these days, but um, I think it's definitely kind of a, a beloved uh, film by by many, or at least judging by all the delighted uh, Ned Schneebly reactions I saw. Um, so it's also a, a favorite of uh, my fiance, Steve. So we were like, yeah, let's put it on. We we have the DVD. We haven't watched School of Rock in over a decade. Let's put it on. It's, just, it's a fun one to, to revisit, you know, like it, I think it's like just the best example example of like Jack Black's talents because it's like kind of you know still tapped into his tenacious D persona a little bit but also like this is a film with a lot of child actors and he works so well with kids like you can tell those kids are just feeding off of him and and, you know you get some pretty good performances out of the, the kids in this film and I, I think it's it's what you might call a delight. I don't know if you if you just want you know to feel maybe some nice warm fuzzies and watch Jack Black be silly. May I suggest revisiting School of Rock? Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I I actually Keith is gonna. I hope I'm not embarrassing him, but I remember seeing School of Rock at a critic screening with you, Keith. 
I don't know if you remember it, mm. but you gave me a ride back home and we both loved it. <laughs> the the critical reaction at the time was very positive. Okay. Oh yeah, we I mean the reaction in my home when we showed it to my daughter a couple months ago was also very positive. I think it holds up very yeah. very well. I, I was it's very happy to, to watch it. Yeah, I do remember seeing that with you, and then going back to see the film uh, at least one other time with with, with, yeah. with my wife. But uh, Keith, how about you? Um, let's see. I don't know. I, I I've seen a lot of stuff lately in terms of stuff to recommend. Um, you know, I, I don't, by this time it'll probably come and gone, but I watched a pretty good horror film today, uh, that played Sundance, uh, called The Night House, starring Rebecca Hall, uh, which is, which is very stylish. And I, I think a, a somewhat, uh, it's a thornier and more complicated than usual. Um, sort of haunted house, uh, story where you get to the end and, and it's not quite entirely clear what you just saw, but it was all really compelling. Uh, in part, I mean, it really helps that, that Rebecca Hall is, uh, is such a complicated performer and, and terrific anchor for this. She, she plays a, without giving too much away, she plays a, uh, recent and unexpected widow who really kind of captures how grief can make you angry and testy and bring out the worst in you and, and not just, just the sadness and how, you know, it can make you hard to be around. But the horror part of it is that she lives in, a, in this uh, beautiful lake house built by her architect husband who, you know, during the day, it seems just fine. And, but, but, but the night house element too, one, one way to read the title is that at night, uh, things happen in this house and she gets some strange visitations and, uh, shades of personal shoppers, some, some ghost, uh, ghost texts, uh, and, and is not quite sure what's going on over the course of the film. She finds out, um, some secrets about her husband, some secrets about the area. And it's, uh, all kind of related to, uh, her own past in an interesting way. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. I think it's, I think it's quite stylish. And, and there's, there, you know, I, I'm still like turning it over whether or not it all hangs together. Um, and I think in some ways it kind of works better as, uh, metaphor and symbolism than it does as, as a narrative. But, but I think it's quite an impressive film. It's written by the team of Ben Collins and Luke, uh, Peterowski, who also wrote a, a, a film I liked quite a bit a couple of years ago called, uh, um, uh, Super Dark Times. And it's directed by David Bruckner, who was, um, mostly contributed to anthology films. Uh, they're all three con- collaborating on a, on a remake of Hellraiser, which sounds, Kind of promising to me. If we if we have to do remakes, uh, they may as well be remakes of, of weird things that are weird, malleable properties <laughs> like Hellraiser. So uh, I'll look forward to see what that's going and the mean uh, what that's going to look like. In the meantime, uh, check out the Nighthouse if you, it sounds intriguing. Uh, Tasha, how about you? Well, this uh, at the point where this episode drops, this will still be a very small uh, uh, bit in the future. But a movie I saw at uh, Sundance in 2020, The Nowhere Inn, is coming out on September 17th. And it is it's a real it's uh, I think for a very specific audience, particularly people who very much enjoy the the music of St. Vincent, which I personally do. The premise is sort of that uh, Annie Clark, uh, who is St. Vincent, there's there's going to be a documentary uh, being made about her life by her real life friend, Carrie Brownstein, who people may remember from Portlandia. And as Carrie starts filming her and kind of trying to capture her life on the road and, and what she's like as a rock star, she starts to find out that uh, Andy's very boring. 
that she's a very normal down to earth person who lives a very normal down to earth life. And she isn't finding much to film. So she starts uh, urging Annie to act up to, to be more of a rock star to, uh, for instance, shoot a scene in bed with uh, her girlfriend, Dakota Fanning to, act out in various ways and put on various personas. And it turns into, we talked a lot about meta movies today. It, it turns into very much a kind of meta movie about kind of rock star branding and identity that kind of goes down a rabbit hole of, of what's real and what's not real. Uh, sometimes you're, you're watching the footage that's being shot uh, and that is the film. Sometimes you're watching the behind the scenes moments of uh, Carrie trying to get something different on screen than what's actually playing out on screen. Uh, and then it kind of goes to a weird cosmic place. It, I think it is for, it's definitely not a, a CineScore kind of uh, hit. It's uh, kind of complicated and naughty in a way. But if you like those two performers, if you've seen them in the past and you have like positive feelings for them, it's a really interesting hangout film that where you can just kind of feel the ambition and feel the playfulness and, and feel the effort to make something more out of this kind of uh, like behind the, the scenes story than there would be otherwise. It's a weirdly ambitious, uh, teeny tiny indie film. And I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to promise anybody that they're going to love it because it's so strange and, and small and specific. But I it did really stick with me. It, it just became one of those films that I, I think about periodically from time to time as what it looks like when somebody doesn't want to give you the same story about their life that everybody else tells you and doesn't want to be artificial, but does want to be interesting and, and ends up with this just kind of like outsized anomaly of a tiny story. I think it's a really interesting and, and well-textured and to some degree, really, really funny film. It has my favorite meta moment in a movie that I've seen in a while where you have Carrie Brownstein playing a documentary director typing into a Google search engine, how to direct a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like waiting for that moment to appear in an indie. So I, I'm with you on that. It's a, a wonderful film. It stays with you for a long time. What about Nighthouse? Did you see that one, Josh? I did, and I am with you to an extent. I <laughs> I do think that uh, Rebecca Hall just has a way of classing up everything she's in, and she is such a fascinating performer that I think she is ennobling material that I I think I found a little more generic than you did. But it definitely yeah. is it definitely is a, a cut from a different. It's it it feels like a a smarter haunted house film than most. So I'm with you on that for sure. And that's it for this edition of the next picture show. Our next pairing will drop on September 7th and September 14th. Genevieve, what do we have on tap? The new sci-fi thriller Reminiscence from Westworld co-creator Lisa Joy takes place in a world that's been so ravaged by climate change that cities are flooded and daytime temperatures are so extreme that life is mostly nocturnal. So naturally, people want to retreat to memories of better days. Hugh Jackman stars as the head of a business that allows people to relive specific memories, which sounds great but can have its perils as we discover when a client, played by Rebecca Ferguson, wants to use the service for the seemingly anodyne purpose of finding her missing keys. The technology and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind does exactly the opposite. It promises to target and erase specific memories. But when a heartbroken Jim Carrey tries to use the service to numb the pain from his breakup with an ex-girlfriend, 
girlfriend, played by Kate Winslet, he finds himself scrambling to hold on to those memories. In our next set of episodes, we're looking at reminiscence and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, and talking about the nature of memory and how even the worst moments in our past have value. Reminiscence hasn't been wildly successful in theaters, but if you want to play along at home, it's still on HBO Max. Eternal Sunshine is rentable on all the usual services. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Annette, One from the Heart, or anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve, let's start with you. Uh, I am the senior TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me lurking on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Josh, how about you? Easiest way to reach out to me would be on Twitter, where I'm at Josh Rothkoff. Uh, and uh, I, I'm i doing freelancing for a number of publications, Empire Magazine, Sight & Sound, The New York Times. Um, but uh, I, I would love to hear from you. Please reach out to me on Twitter. Tasha, what about you? I am the film and TV editor at uh, Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith, what about you? I'm a freelance writer. I'm kind of all over the place. You can find, you can follow my writing at, at tw- uh, on Twitter at kfips3000, where I post my links, where I write for places like GQ, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, uh, other places as well. Um, and our, so, you know, you know, check, check out what I'm up to there. Uh, our absent co-host, uh, Scott W. Tobias, uh, it, it can be found on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, he writes for all kinds of places too, uh, the New York Times, the Guardian, where he's on the anniversary beat. Uh, he's just writing up a storm all, <laughs> all the time, right? Wish him a happy belated birthday when you hear yes, this. Yes, let's all wish him a happy belated birthday. When you get this, you'll say it'll be two weeks too late, but I'm sure he'll appreciate uh, the sentiment. Uh, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. So may we start So may we start It's time to start My time to start They hope that it goes the way It's supposed to go